This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, how people who don't qualify for new cancer drugs get them in preference to those who are actually known to benefit. Mental stress in your heart, how public speaking can foretell your future. A sweet spot for exercise and staving off cognitive decline. And psychedelics, mind-changing hallucinogenic drugs like psilocybin, MDMA and LSD have made a comeback in recent years for their supposed potential to treat mental health issues, particularly in association with psychotherapy, talking therapies. There was a lot of research in the 1950s and 60s, but that got lost in the flower generation and the overhype from people such as Timothy Leary. Researchers have regretted this because they say a lot of good things were lost as these drugs were made illicit. And we've covered this on more than one occasion on the Health Report. These days, psychedelic research centres are popping up around the world, including at Monash University in Melbourne. And associated with that enthusiasm that some say might end up in disappointment. Professor Wayne Hall has been researching drugs all his life or his career and has observed a similar cycle with, say, cannabis which has yet to settle. Dr. Paul Lingleitsky is head of the Clinical Research Psychedelic Lab, sorry, the Clinical Psychedelic, and I haven't had any psychedelics today, the Clinical Psychedelic Research Lab at Monash University. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Norman. Thanks, Norman. Um, hope and put disappointment. I mean, Paul, what, what is the evidence for hope and why? <clears throat> Yeah, uh, really a good prelude there that we have uh, come through this in a first wave of psychedelic psychiatry through the 50s and 60s. And my hope is that uh, some of those lessons learned in that uh, first wave uh, can, can be instantiated. Now, we certainly see a lot of reason for hope that we have a potentially new set of treatments uh, for a range of mental health indications. Uh, there's some really promising and impressive evidence out of a number of research centers around the world. For what? Showing that, showing that uh, for example, psilocybin-assisted therapy uh, can work incredibly well for uh, issues such as anxiety, depression, and substance misuse disorders. Uh, and MDMA-assisted therapy uh, is incredibly promising for post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and yet... Uh, it is important that we continue to distinguish between the good reasons for hope and then what is appearing to be a lot of hype in, in the current era. Which is what worries you, Wayne. Yes, it does. Uh, I guess one of the disadvantages about being as chronologically gifted as I am, as I've seen some of this before with uh, with other drugs, uh, you know, the SSRIs were sort of greeted with similar enthusiasm. The antidepressants. Uh, market, yeah, antidepressants and the atypical antipsychotic drugs were uh, similarly uh, seen as transformative uh, treatments. I mean, they, they do have a role, both of those classes of drugs, but in the longer term, the, the results weren't quite as good as they promised to be initially. And I think that's what we might expect to see with psychedelics. I agree with Paul that there's uh, very promising evidence from early trials and uh, larger trials are now underway and it'll be important to see uh, what results uh, turn out from those. And when you say psychotherapy assisted, as far as what I understand by that is that you actually take the drug in a controlled circumstance with somebody who's experienced and then you use the experience that the drug generates to gain insights into somebody's behaviour or psychological state. Yes, Norman. So this is exactly key to, I think, getting this right and, and potentially some of the reasons why uh, we may see 
uh, disappointment in the future is if, uh, in my view, if we don't get the extra pharmacological support right. So it's certainly not just a drug treatment. This is not, uh, you know, a take two and call me in the morning kind of situation. It really involves uh, a form of extensive and specialized psychotherapy that doesn't really resemble uh, the kinds of psychotherapy you see uh, on offer anywhere else outside the field of psychedelics. So, um, you know, my sense is... So give me a yeah, sense of what happens. Mm, so in the, in the research trials that we're setting up... Um, and many of them around the world, you, as a participant, uh, go through a rigorous process of screening firstly, and then you receive a number of sessions of preparatory psychotherapy. This is kind of preparing the launch pad for what uh, many report to be quite a cosmological journey. In fact, the majority of people that have these high-dose psilocybin experiences, for example, uh, reported to be among one of the most uh, personally meaningful and challenging experiences of their lives. And, and, and there's then, some evidence you don't get the benefit unless you do actually have that out-of-body experience. It's not quite as clear-cut as that, but certainly uh, there are characteristics of the acute psychedelic experience that predict uh, clinical benefit better than anything else. Uh, but but you know it's it's not it's not fully clear cut. Um, so a lot. So of, then you. So a, you lot, go of, this, a lot of then yep. is this uh, that's interpretive, and when you've been a critic of your fellow psychologists in the variation that can occur in psychotherapies, and that's psychotherapies which are much more protocol driven, like cognitive behavioural therapy. Is it going to be possible to do well-controlled trials when you've got when you've got the potential for such huge variation in the psychotherapy technique? Well, I think the, the clinical trials have got a good handle on it with manualized treatment. I, I think the concern I'd share that you just outlined is if these drugs are allowed into clinical practice early without uh, proper oversight and training of a psychotherapist, then I, I think we will see all of the sorts of variations, people uh, putting their own stamp on the psychotherapy and uh, this form of treatment, I, mean, I think the other concern about it is that, and it's been expressed by one of the, Matthew Johnson, who's been doing these trials, is that people tend to become gurus, uh, claiming all sorts of uh, special knowledge and uh, and so on. And there's a, a real risk that if, if these sorts of treatments are not well done, uh, uh, you can end up with uh, various forms of abuse of patients. Uh, can it be protocolized, this, uh, these, these psychotherapies, so that there's a, a standardization in a sense, uh, Paul? Uh, yes, indeed. I mean, th there will always be uh, you know, a lot of wiggle room and, and the human factors are at play. But certainly the, the research program that's furthest along, which is MDMA for PTSD, spearheaded by MAPS, uh, involves a manualized psychotherapeutic approach. And, and that will be you know, instantiated in... Uh, their market approval if they get... Uh, when you say the manualized, there's a manual. In other words, there's a, thing, a, a, set, a system that you follow. I mean, isn't, yeah. isn't this out of the box already? I mean, you've got people going all over Australia for, you know, Ayushka weekends where they take it and hallucinate and vomit and then feel much better for themselves. And uh, shrooms are almost universal where you've got a box of chocolates coming out at a party. I mean, isn't this just, so to speak, out of the box already, Paul? Well, this is the this is the key bit here, which is that these drugs alone uh, do not predict clinical benefit very well. It's it's the combination of psychedelic substances with the specialized form of psychotherapy that seems to matter. So it's really an interaction between the two, and the fact that psychedelics are widely used in the wild. Um, doesn't uh, necessarily indicate their clinical utility. That's what we're exploring in these trials. And, you know, by no means is it in the bag yet. What's the regulation like here? I mean, what, what, 
there's been a change in regulation for medicinal cannabis, and Wayne's quite a bit of a critic of some of that. Um, what's the, how's the regulation changed, if at all, in relation to psychedelics? Yes, yeah, so the regulations haven't changed in relation to psychedelics. There are there are no legal impediments to us doing the research. Uh, it's it's perfectly feasible, and, and indeed we do this, that we bring uh, psilocybin and MDMA into the country for research purposes. Um, they are prohibited medicines, or prohibited poisons, I should say, at, at the moment. And should we get uh, any of these treatments over the line in terms of uh, drug approvals with the FDA or the TGA, which is actually more near term than you would e expect. Uh, MAPS looks very likely to get MDMA assisted therapy over the line by the end of 2023, um, then we may see changes in uh, the scheduling uh, and, and the regulation. Look, thank you very much to you both. Fascinating. Emeritus, Emeritus Professor Wayne Hall from the University of Queensland and, and Paul Lignitsky from New Monash University. And you can hear about how some of the big trials of MDMA and psilocybin and PTSD and depression are going by listening to Radio National's All in the Mind programme with Sana Kadar. We'll put a link on our website. Just search RN's Health Report. Clinical trials are often quite restrictive about who they let in, and if new drugs show good results, you can, can't be sure the benefits apply to anyone beyond the specific type of person who was in the study. This is particularly true in cancer care oncology, where oncologists are, attempted, are tempted to use new and expensive drugs on people who are outside the recommended use, especially those who are older and sicker. Well, a study of just those people has been done looking at the use of the new and very expensive immunotherapy medications, which have become available for so-called solid tumours in organs like the lung, liver, bladder and kidneys. The results of the study were actually quite shocking. Dr Ravi Parikh of the University of Pennsylvania was one of the authors. Thank you. Now, some people have called this desperation oncology. What do they mean by that? Desperation oncology really refers to the use of novel therapies, such as immunotherapies, in settings close to the end of life, typically thought of as a measure of last resort. But I think what it really runs the danger of, potentially, is giving individuals therapies when it may not be indicated or may not be a benefit and potentially delaying transitions to more palliative courses of therapy or hospice. So these immunotherapy drugs have been, have been various randomized trials in melanoma and other uh, solid tumors, and the group treated is very well defined. And what you're doing in this study is what happens to people who are given these drugs who are outside that well-defined group, particularly those who are older and sicker. That's correct. How did you study that? The one way we didn't study it is by clinical trials, because unfortunately there are no clinical trials, particularly phase three randomized clinical trials in this population. So what we had to do is use real-world data data that's collected in the routine course of care for patients that are being treated for cancer care in the United States. So we used a large, you know, likely the largest real-world data set in the United States to study this question, aggregating a cohort of almost 35,000 individuals treated over a long time period, you know, a five-year time period, to study what were they receiving, particularly those who were sicker or older, and how well did those novel therapies do? Which tumors? So we studied four different tumors, non-small cell lung cancer, which is the most common lung cancer that's diagnosed in the United States, bladder cancer, kidney cancer, and liver cancer. And you looked at whether or not they got the drugs as single drugs, combination with other drugs, and fairly standard chemotherapy and radiation. That's correct, yeah. 
And what did you find? Well, we found two main findings. So first, we studied what patients were actually receiving. And what we found was that patients who were sicker, you know, patients who we call this traditionally trial ineligible, they were about twice as likely to receive these novel immunotherapies compared to healthier patients who would have been included. And this is despite the fact that these drugs have never been studied in that particular sick group of individuals. So, so hold, that was hold the on first a, finding. That's an astounding discovery. So in fact, if you were trial ineligible, in other words, you wouldn't have got into the trial, so you're sicker and older, you were twice as likely to get the drug than somebody who was actually eligible. That's correct. That's breathtaking. It is. And it's breathtaking. I would say from the outside, it's very breathtaking. But when you go into clinic, because I've been guilty of this practice as well, uh, I, you know, I'll just come out and admit it. When you go into the clinic and you're kind of in front of a patient who's particularly sick, it is a very, very difficult decision with the type of therapy that you offer someone. You are operating in the absence of evidence. And essentially, when that person is too sick for chemotherapy or when you feel like chemotherapy could lead to you know, potentially a lot of downsides, you're faced with this decision of do I offer this immunotherapy, which you know, has relatively little side effects, but you know, in all likelihood won't work, or do I make this really difficult decision of opting for something like hospice care? You know, I've been in this situation countless of times. I've gone one way in some situations, the other way in certain situations. And so it's a very real clinical scenario. And I can understand why some clinicians do that the way they do, but it is in the absence of evidence. And what did you find in terms of outcomes? Well, so this was the perhaps the most sobering finding here. We found that there was no survival difference between the immunotherapies, either alone or in combination with other drugs, and chemotherapies. And in fact, for individuals, when you looked at earlier than a year, at that time frame, immunotherapy seemed to have somewhat of a survival decrement, meaning that um, within a year, more people died who received immunotherapy than didn't. And so the most important thing to take from there is this is completely opposite than what the phase three clinical trials that have led to the approval of these drugs have shown. And it has to be said, these are expensive drugs. These are. They're expensive drugs, and they're often used for indefinite time periods as well. So this has a value argument as well. You know, it has big implications for how we think about costs and the value of cancer care. Given that they say in oncology, you should be asking yourself the question as a clinician, would I be surprised if this person died in the next 12 months? And if the answer is yes, they really should be receiving palliative care, what you call hospice care. And there are randomized trials that show if you stop this desperation oncology and start palliative care, they actually can live longer and better. Did you have any assessment of the group of patients in this study who actually would have qualified for palliative care under that definition, which is, would you be surprised if they died of their disease in the next 12 months? That's a great point. And unfortunately, we weren't able to do that analysis because they simply weren't asked that question. So we didn't have that identifier in the data set. But what I would say is that theoretically, many, if not most, if not all of these patients would have been eligible for palliative care just by virtue of the fact of how sick they were heading into therapy. And so I think the question we weren't able to answer is what would have happened if these patients were referred to hospice or palliative care earlier? There's two questions which arise. One is families can often, and patients can often be divided here. Some people want everything done. Some people say, I, I really don't want anything done. So it's important for families and patients to know these sort of data. And the second question is whether or not clinical guidelines should change to actually be stricter about the prescription of these drugs. I think with regard to the first point, that's a very patient-sensitive decision. We would never propose 
the results of these trial being used to withhold certain therapies from one patient or the other, because it, it really is a patient and family dependent response. But what I would say is that we need to be understanding of the evidence and to communicate that lack of or possibility of benefit to patients before we prescribe these drugs. Because if we just assume that patients are going to do as well as they do in the clinical trial, well, this paper would say the opposite. The second point, whether we should be adjusting guidelines. So probably the most critical point that needs to come from this is that we need trials in this population. You know, there's a lot of research that says we need trials, you know, we need more evidence. But I think it's particularly salient in this study because this is a group that has been traditionally excluded from nearly all trials of chemotherapy or immunotherapy from time on end. It's just been sort of assumed that we don't want to assess effectiveness in this population with these typical novel drugs because you know, we want to assess in a healthier population. And I think we really, really need prospective phase three evidence in this population so that we can make the move of whether to keep these things in guidelines or whether not to. But we need that evidence before we make those guideline changes. And what about the poor souls who are eligible and don't get it? Is it because the traditional treatment's almost as good as the immunotherapy and immunotherapy's second line rather than first line? I mean, what's going on there? That's an excellent point. You know, sometimes physicians are lagging behind the evidence and are prescribing these drugs in the second line rather than the first line, despite the fact that in healthy populations, Using immunotherapy in the first line is often the right thing to do. But I think oftentimes it comes down to potentially a lack of access. Oftentimes in some of these cancers, you need a test, what's called a PDL1 assay, to determine whether you're eligible or not. And some people just don't get tested, and so they'll never get access to the drug. And then the other thing is you need the drug. And quite frankly, in a lot of areas, whether it's in the United States or around the world, there's just not access to these highly effective but costly you know, drugs. And that's a big issue. That speaks to a completely different issue of, of patients who should be getting it but don't. Ravi, thank you very much for joining us on The Health Report. Thank you very much, Norman, for the opportunity. Dr. Ravi Parikh is a medical oncologist and researcher in medical ethics and health policy at the University of Pennsylvania. It used to be thought that acute mental stress wasn't that bad for the heart, but over the years, the experts have changed their minds, and people do have heart attacks when their team loses the grand final. But acute stress could also be a way of measuring your degree of heart disease and future risk. A group at Emory University in the United States has been trying out public speaking, pretty much like a medical test for your risk of developing what's called myocardial ischemia, a shortage of blood to the heart. Viola Vaccarino is Professor of Cardiovascular Research at Emory. Thank you so much for having me. Which kind of stress were you looking at in this study? So we used this particular protocol called mental stress testing, which is based on a public speaking task. And public speaking in presence of an audience, so there is kind of an evaluative component to it. It's not just the, the act of speaking in public, but also the fact of not getting a good feedback because the audience around the patient were people that the patient didn't know and they didn't respond, didn't smile, and they, they looked a little bit... Oh um, gosh, the worst audience that right. you could imagine for a public right. stage. Right. Exactly. One could think of this as acute stress, but what we think that this test does is actually to understand the, uh, the responses to stress that people have actually in everyday life. Because this is a stress in the, in the laboratory, of course. So something that could be perhaps criticized for our study, because this is 
uh, in artificial stressor done in the laboratory, how does that relate to people's lives? We think that this method actually allows us to examine how patients react to stress, the acute stressors that perhaps occur in everyday life. And perhaps these recurrent responses have a cumulative effect in the long term, uh, every day. Or, so even though it's got a, a different source uh, from the chronic stress we're talking about, it's still repeated stress, which is battering, in yes. theory, battering away at your arteries and your heart yes. or your brain. We think that this is a way that we can actually uncover the vulnerability that some people may have in their responses to stress in everyday life. And so you compared these people who had the mental stress to people who'd had physical stress in a standard exercise stress test that you might have from any cardiologist. Yes, but what we were really interested in is the phenomenon of mental stress-induced ischemia. So all the patients underwent myocardial perfusion imaging after the mental stress test. And then they came in a separate day to have a regular uh, stress test like a treadmill stress test, just as a comparison, where patients developed ischemia during mental stress. And we looked at differences in the rate of cardiac events and death over the follow-up. And what did you find? And then we found that those patients who developed mental stress ischemia, it was about 17% of the sample, had more than twice an increased rate of subsequent cardiac events and cardiac death over five years of follow-up. And we took into account those patients who had ischemia also with a regular stressor, like an exercise stress test. So the relationship that we found with ischemia induced by mental stress, it was not the same phenomenon as the ischemia provoked by an, a physical stressor. So you found that if you got shortage of blood to the heart, during the acute mental stress, it predicted events in the next five years. Mm-hmm. Was it a better test of your outcome compared to the exercise stress test, which has been quite controversial? Actually, the association was stronger. Those patients who only had mental stress ischemia had a higher risk than those who did not have mental stress ischemia, just had exercise stress ischemia. It's an important indicator of a risk. This is an important phenomenon that we need to evaluate better. We need to be able to include in some way in our clinical assessments. The way this device right now, it's not feasible in a busy clinical setting. But what we are now doing is studying correlates of this particular way we stress patients that perhaps could be easier to do. What most cardiologists would do is if they got a positive stress test, particularly if it's using echocardiography, in other words, an ultrasound of the heart rather than an ECG, they would then probably refer on to hit an angiogram of the heart to see where the blockage might be. If you got a positive mental stress test, would you say that that's similarly an indication to actually see what's going on in the arteries of the heart? Well, no. We think actually the mechanisms are in large part different because mental stress-induced ischemia is less strongly related to obstructive coronary artery disease than the regular ischemia. 
So uh, that means that probably a major mechanism behind this phenomenon is microvascular. So in other words, your stress hormones are squeezing the tiny vessels in the heart, right. which are not necessarily blocked, but they may be diseased. Right. But there's not, there's not much right. you can do for it apart from getting your cholesterol down, your blood pressure down, not smoking. It's a lifestyle thing to actually correct those. Yes, and th there may be therapeutic ways that we can manage this. Now, this phenomenon of small blood vessels in the heart being the problem rather than big ones is also thought to be behind a lot of coronary heart disease in women. Was this stronger yes. in women than in men in your sample? So indeed, we found that women have much higher rate of mental stress-induced ischemia than men. In terms of follow-up, the effect was actually slightly less in women than in men, although you know the, the study was really not designed to look at sex differences, and we did a lot of comparisons, so those results are preliminary. And also, we think that we need better ways to measure microvascular disease induced by mental stress in order to really go after the risk in women. So meantime, get all your risk factors down, try and manage your stress levels and um, keep listening to the health report. We'll bring you back on, Viola, when you've got further results. That will be great. <laughs> Viola Vaccarino is Professor of Cardiovascular Research at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. We know that exercise seems to help stave off age-related cognitive decline, but why? And how much do you need? Well, a huge study in mice has pointed to a sweet spot for exercise, a precise amount that was shown to reverse learning deficits in elderly mice. It has to do with making new nerve cells in your hippocampus, the part of your brain involved in spatial navigation and forming important memories. So what is this sweet spot? And what does it mean for us non-mice? Perry Bartlett from the Queensland Brain Institute has been studying this for decades and was involved in the two studies that have recently been published. Welcome, Perry. Nice to be with you, Tegan. So first things first, what's the sweet spot, at least for mice? Well, the sweet spot is, is something we never thought would be there. But in essence, it was a period of exercise that gave us the outcome that we were seeking. So as you said, I mean, what we've been looking at was to test the hypothesis that if we could drive the production of new nerve cells in these old mice's hippocampus, that would be able to reverse the effects of their cognitive decline, which is quite dramatic in these very old mice. So we set out thinking that exercise would be a good way of activating the, the production of these new nerve cells, because we knew from studies over the last couple of decades that the cells that make new nerve cells are sitting there latent, and we needed to activate them, and exercise appeared to be a good way of doing it. But unbeknown to us is that um, the amount of exercise that was required to activate them wasn't straightforward. And in fact, Dan Blackmore, the research fellow who did most of this uh, study in a very persevering long way, found that in fact it was only one period of exercise and that turned out to be five weeks of running on a, uh, a running wheel where the mice run about two or three kilometres overnight that gave rise to the production of these new nerve cells and the dramatic improvement in these animals' ability to spatially navigate. So the interesting thing was that increased uh, lengths of time, that is more than five weeks, was just as negative as, as under-exercising uh, for five weeks, which was a, the very surprising finding. 
But it turned out to really be the key to try and understand what was going on in terms of how this was regulated. Because with this spike of activity, we had a, a clear window of looking at what the mechanism was, and that's been a great revolution, a revelation. So the, so the sweet spot turns out to be a sweet spot of production of growth hormone. So the sweet spot is not, you know, it's not sine qua non that 35 days of exercise is exactly the right amount. The sweet spot is actually the production of this spike in growth hormone production. And we know that that's the important thing in this, in this situation because we block growth hormone, we can block the response, and if we give growth hormone, we can promote the response. So this is so, something you can uh, measure now as well. You can see if it's working by measuring that exactly, hormone. Exactly, exactly. So, in fact, if we take these same old mice and exercise them for 35 days, but using uh, um, a wheel that's very, very easy to, to turn, not like the one they've been working, so their workload is less. In fact, it doesn't activate growth hormone and there is no improvement in cognition. There is no activation of, of, uh, of um, production of new nerve, nerve cells, and there's no activation of the, of the precursors either. So uh, what we've found really is the sweet spot is not so much the length of exercise, but the sweet spot of the amount of exercise that leads to a change in the hormonal levels in these animals. So what, uh, how long per day should a human be running on a wheel to get to this 35 days equivalent? Well, I think that's what, that's, that's where we, that's why we started looking in, in the human uh, situation and started these, uh, started these trials uh, a few years back to see if there was a sweet spot. So, so really what we're looking for in humans, because we're not like these these mice, which are all identical, they're, they're like uh, identical twins, so they're all timed to do exactly the same thing. Every human is going to have uh, a different capability, perhaps even a different sweet spot. So we need, we need to understand what the markers are that indicate the amount of exercise you are doing would correspond to improvement of cognition, presumably through the same mechanism of activating hippocampal stem cells and leading to the production of new neurons. Just in 10 seconds, can you tell us when we'll know? Well, we've finished this pretty large study of 150 uh, people between 65 and 85, and we're starting to get closer. So what, what I can tell you, it turns out that, that it looks like there are sweet spots corresponding to certain changes in the blood. Emeritus Professor Perry Bartlett is founding director of the Queensland Brain Institute at the University of Queensland. What do you reckon the human sweet spot is, Norman? Well, I think getting up from the sitting position to standing is a start. You know, <laughs> then one can move on from there. That's your but preferred exercise. No, no, but no, seriously, there's, there's got to be a degree of intensity about it. Um, and, uh, and you've got to just be a little bit careful extrapolating from mice to humans. But um, the evidence is there that reasonably intense exercise can generate new nerves. Well, it's mailbag time now, and if you have questions or comments, you can email us, healthreport at abc.net.au is the email account. And Norman, I want to start with a piece of, I guess it's feedback. It's not the feedback that I would usually want to receive because Justin has written in saying, thank you, Norman and Tegan, for the information on concussion recovery on the Monday episode. It's been very helpful because in a weird stroke of fate, Justin says, 
I had a concussion that very same day. Oh, gosh. Well, I hope you're okay, Justin, and that you're using radio as your therapy rather than screens, because we were suggesting that screens delayed recovery. So, Justin, we wish you all the best. And that you're getting up and exercising uh, moderately within that uh, 48-hour window, which just sounds like the two things I would least like to do if I was recovering from a concussion. Get that hippocampus moving. (laughs) Uh, so question time, and Celia is writing in because 30 years ago, she squashed a disc in her back, suffered chronic pain. She remembers holding up traffic in the Royal Parade Melbourne is slowly hobbling across the road and was put into traction for about a week, had Valium as a muscle relaxant, and all the vertebrae and discs moved back into place. She wore a surgical corset for three months and she's completely recovered. But you hear so many stories, and Celia knows of people herself, who have after effects from invasive back surgery. So she wants to say, why is traction out of favour today when she found it so successful 30 years ago? Look, I hate to disappoint Celia, but you, you've had an intervention, which is actually not just one intervention. So you had traction, you had Valium, which is a, bit, a little bit controversial in terms of its use in back pain. And you wore a surgical corset, which certainly people are down on these days because it actually wastes away the muscle and can make rehabilitation harder. And if you follow people with acute back pain, they're often much better by three months no matter what you do. So that could be your situation, Celia, or it could be that that package of stuff really helped you and which we're very glad to hear. The reason people are down on traction is there's been quite a few randomised trials of traction which have really not shown much benefit. And it's partly the problem with traction is that it's done in different ways, and it's probably done these days differently from the way you experience it. So, for example, there are devices now for traction. They look a bit like um, electric chairs where you sit in them. (laughs) Well, they are electric chairs in some ways. And you sit in them and they'll exert control tension on your back in different ways with vibration or without vibration. There is a little bit of evidence that some of these sitting contraptions do have some benefit, but the evidence overall is not strong. So what is the standard care for uh, something like this squash disc? Like she's talking about invasive back surgery. Is that done frequently on people with a squash disc? Well, it's done too frequently because there's not a lot of evidence that spinal surgery does work. There's a couple of situations where spinal surgery is called for. If you talk to spinal surgeons who are ethical and they do the right thing, they'll say if you've just got chronic back pain or low back pain without radiation down your leg, they recommend against it. They do not say that they get good results with that. What they say is the basic criterion is that you've had a lot of pain in your back going down your leg, in other words, sciatica. The nerve root pain is radiating down your leg. And if it's really severe and it's not going away, then uh, spinal surgery can help. Um, Although at 12 months, if you could put up with the pain, there's probably not a lot of difference between people who've had spinal surgery and those who haven't. Um, The other reason for um, spinal surgery, which is more of an emergency, is where the disc prolapse is so severe that it's actually compromising the nerves themselves Mm -hmm. so that you're getting neurological symptoms, you're dragging your leg, you've got numbness and tingling, particularly numbness and tingling between your legs, so-called saddle effect. And that is a surgical emergency where you really do want to decompress the collapsed disc very quickly. Other than that, it's um, gentle exercise, mobilisation, pain relief and not lying down to it. 
And then a question from Danny about shingles. And basically to distill Danny, Danny's backstory, they had a very severe bout of herpes zoster ophthalmicus. Uh, I, don't, I don't actually know what that is. I'm assuming that's a, a shingles attack. It's a shingles attack which affects the eye and right. can be very serious indeed. So that's a really nasty form of shingles which you do well, not want to get. Well, Danny says they still have mild symptoms to this day. This happened in late 2018. No treatment they tried seemed to have any positive effect on their symptoms. The only real cause given was stress. And they found themselves going, well, I couldn't work full time for at least six months. Just wondering what the economic cost of shingles could be Australia-wide and where it sits in the priority list of research dollars. A lot is known about shingles in terms of it's being a reactivation of the chickenpox virus. So the chickenpox virus goes into herpes zoster, so herpes virus. So herpes viruses live in nerves, so you get infected, it goes into the nerves, lives there, and then can come out. Same as herpes of the genitals can come and go, and herpes of the lips can come and go. And essentially it's the virus coming in and out of the nerve cells. And so it is with shingles. And Danny's right. The problem is that they don't really know what makes shingles come out. So in rare situations, it could be that you've got a cancer or an immune deficiency where the shingles comes out. Now, that's not the common cause of sh- shingles. Don't terrify people. Mm. It's commoner when you're older. So it's commoner when you get older for shingles to come out. And that's probably the weakened immune system that we're now also for, all too familiar with, with COVID. That weakened immune system as you get older brings the shingles out, which is why the shingles vaccine is free after the age of 70. But anybody can have the shingles vaccine should they choose to have it and pay for it, um, even at an earlier age. And what is known is that if you recognise shingles for what it is early and start active treatment, because there are drugs which help, but they really only help at the very earliest stages of the disease and get in and get in aggressively, it can make a difference, particularly to the long-term pain that can occur afterwards. It's not inevitable, but the long-term pain that can occur after shingles can be miserable and early treatment can actually interrupt that. And the reason you get long-term pain is that the nerves are affected and damaged. So to answer Danny's question, I mean, we you want mean more research in everything, yeah. but is it appropriately funded? Is research into shingles appropriately funded? Really don't know. I suspect not. Well, that's all we've got time for in the mailbag today. Your questions and comments can go to healthreport at abc.net.au. Now, the Health Report is on summer programming over the next couple of weeks, so we won't be doing this mailbag, but we will be back with the mailbag in early 2022. See you then. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs> You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.